Good morning, Bethel Church. Merry Christmas. I feel, what's it, George Bailey who says that? Merry Christmas. That came out a little like that. I didn't mean for it to. Um, Boy, we had half of our worship team uh, came ill this morning, or didn't come here, came down ill, and so weren't here. And I just want to thank... uh, the remnant, the righteous remnant, <laughs> who persevered. So thank you for that. And, um, and let's just go to the Lord in prayer now before, uh, before we go to his word. So let's pray. Our Father, this time of year, there are many things um, on our minds. Um, there are travel plans and parties and gifts and relationships to tend to and any number of things that are not related to the holidays at all, but seem to have an exclamation point upon them at this time of year. Uh, Lord, we do not set down um, our worries or concerns or potential distractions. We bring them all to you. Uh, We come to you now with our whole selves, with all that is on our heart and mind, knowing that our Father cares. I pray, God, that as we come to your word now, that we would be reminded of how great our God is, how great our salvation is, how wonderful is Jesus, how wonderful is the future for those who have taken refuge in Christ. Um, Lord, all of these features of holiday and Christmas time can become so familiar. I ask, God, that you would break through the familiarity Uh, penetrate our hearts with the beauty and the truth of your word. Uh, May we believe them afresh and orient our lives uh, wholly and completely to the nature and the image of Jesus Christ as we seek to become more and more like him with your grace. So we pray these things in his strong name with expectation and hope. Amen. Uh, If you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, uh, we're continuing on in our series, Songs of the Saints, and uh, we'll be kind of wrapping this up towards the end of the month, as you might expect. Um, A couple weeks ago, I went into the newest Starbucks in town uh, to read and to kind of study over coffee, and uh, this happens to be the shop where um, my oldest son, Aiden, works. So if you go to that Starbucks anytime soon, look for Aiden. And um, anyways, I was there and, uh, you know, I ordered my drink. And, you know, the, when, you, when you order your drink, normally they ask for your name so they can, you know, write that or print that on, on the cup or on whatever it is that you've ordered to make sure they can get the right order to the right person. They're very understandable. Well, I was visiting with a friend for a little bit and then um, I sat down and they, they brought me my, my beverage and my pastry. And while I was sitting there enjoying it, I noticed that it said on it, Aiden's dad. <laughs> and I was like, well, what is this? I'm not even a whole person anymore. Like, I'm just tethered to this guy. Let's zoom in. Aiden's dad. There it is on my blueberry scone. You know, I like to think I have some stature, a little bit of notoriety. No, I'm Aiden's dad. So that was kind of a funny little experience that I had here recently. Uh, Today we're looking at a song in Luke 1 called the Benedictus Dominus Deus. It is the song of Zechariah, and this song flows out of a really interesting story between a father and a son, one who's 
you know, the, the notoriety of Zechariah's son certainly going to be more significant than Father Zechariah. Uh, and so at the end of, uh, of Luke chapter 1, if you want to turn there, we find this old priest, Zechariah, and his wife Elizabeth. They don't have kids. They're beyond the age of childbearing. But Zechariah is visited by an angel and told that miraculously they're going to have a child. Uh, a son whose name will be John. He's to be named John. And he's going to have an awesome, awesome ministry responsibility to announce and to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. Now, Zechariah is, you know, sort of a prominent figure in his own right. He's a priest at the temple. In fact, his cohort is there when the angel appears to give him this news. And he's told, however, it's his son who's going to have a much bigger ministry uh, than his own. He's going to be John the Baptist's dad. You know, that's what's going to be printed on his Starbucks cup. Zach's dad, you know, or John's dad, rather. That's who he's going to be. So it's a really interesting story. Uh, basically, I would say what we get to see here is how a once skeptical priest uh, becomes an enthusiastic witness of the mission of God in Christ Jesus. And we also get to see by his song really how Israel's expectation of Messiah initially was too small. And it is John the Baptist's role partly to kind of help enlarge upon it to understand what Messiah really came to do. In other words, Messiah didn't come simply to rescue them from a social condition. Messiah comes to rescue them from a spiritual condition. And it's Zechariah's song that kind of helps start this in John the Baptist's ministry, which will um, be very explicit about it. And then we also get to see just sort of the human component of the scriptures here. What, what transpires here and what we learn here comes through a father, a very human father. And the joy that he has in the expectation of his son and the ministry that his son will have, this incredible role that John Baptist will, will play in the redemptive history that God is unfolding right in front of them. And that's kind of the, one of the shocking takeaways here is that God enlists people, ordinary people like you and me, in his redemptive plan. We're, we're part of this thing, not just spectators. But God enlists us and puts us to work for the sake of his kingdom. Now I'm going to read the backstory here, and I'll, and I'll warn you in advance, there's a fair bit of reading to kind of get our context for how this uh, song uh, drops into the text here. So I'll read the backstory, and then I've asked if Tom Schneider would come and read the song. So we'll start with Luke 1, uh, starting at verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, uh, how, can this, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. 
The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home after his wife Elizabeth became pregnant uh, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now skip down to verse 57, if you would. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And Tom, if you would come forward to read now. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Thanks, Tom. Uh, well, if you focus on uh, the, the verses that, this, that is primarily the song here, verses 68 through, um, through 79, I hope you notice there's sort of two parts. There's almost a natural break right in the middle there. And the, the first part, right, right at verses 75 and 76, and this first part that we see really focuses attention on the fact that God has been faithful, that what he has promised is now being unfolded right in their midst. And that's, that's really sort of the big, uh, big picture of this, the first section of the song. Zechariah praises God for his faithfulness. Right now, he is unfolding his plan. The moment of truth has Now, there's a really cool thing going on in this song here. You may not have noticed it, but there is sort of a rhetorical 
device or a literary feature that's being used here. Uh, and let me just, by way of comparison, let me just introduce to you some that you probably know very well in our own day and age to kind of introduce this concept to you. If you see this, www, you know, oh, we're talking about a web page, right? You can just see the www and you know, you know kind of what it's going to be referring to. Let me give you another one here. If you see an at Gmail, you know, oh, this is an email address. So if you find an email address such as, you know, catlover at gmail.com, you know it's an email address for a person you don't want to be friends with. You know, that's what you find here. They already have friends. Here's another one. This one might be a little more elusive. Uh, Here's a couple lines for you. I'll read them. See if you can pick out what this might be. Christmas is coming. Better start your shopping now. I wear a size large. What is this? It's a haiku. Few of you got it. Well done. Now, you might not just look at it and, you know, immediately pick up on it, but when you get the beats and you hear the lines, you realize, ah, it's five, seven, and five in terms of syllables. That's a haiku. That's the rule of a haiku. And I have one more for you, another sort of literary feature that really makes clear what you're about to encounter, and here it is. When you see this one, you know you're about to see a really great movie, right? And I will remind you, yeah, someone over here is letting me know. It's Thursday is when it comes out, and we will be there. We have our tickets. I bought them yesterday. They even gave us a seat, so we're, we're good. So we'll see you there. It's still going, isn't it? So these are some kind of rhetorical or literary devices. We see them, and we know what they signify and what they point to. And we find actually one of these in the text right here that we're looking at, and it's called a chiasm. And uh, a chiasm is sort of a literary device that our original readers would have absolutely picked up on and seen. It would have been as clear to them as what you just saw, some of the things that you just saw. A chiasm uh, is basically a repetition of word or concept that creates a shape or a pattern in the text. And so I've given you an example on the back of your notes, and I'll project it for you. It looks something like this. As you see, I've got sugar, egg, yolk, milk, dairy, egg whites, syrup. These concepts are kind of mirrored and structured in such a way that they create this indentation. And the reason they call it a chiasm is because this indentation corresponds to the Greek letter chi, or what looks like our X. You see how it takes that indentation and then it comes back out. Uh, Now, the reason, so that's why they call it that. But the really wonderful thing is if you ever see one of these in the text or think you see one, um, it's kind of fun. It's like a little, uh, it's like a little treasure map. It's like X marks the spot, because right at the center of this X, right here, uh, this is where the author is putting his intent and purpose. That's what he wants to draw your attention to. It is a way of focusing attention on the salient points of their message. And so, in our particular outline, it's these two center points about what he has said through his prophets, that our God has remembered his covenant. Our God is faithful. He did what he said he was going to do, both in prophecy and covenant, and now they're right in front of us. 
And so that's what the author is trying to do here by sort of creating the attention to this. Sometimes the chiasm will come to a singular point, so it'll be like A, B, C, B, A. Sometimes it will come to a parallel point like ours does this morning, the A, B, C, C, B, A. And can I just tell you, this week, typing all of this out with Microsoft Word and auto-formatting, can you imagine the difficulty of making this outline? Some of you know what I'm talking about. I nearly lost my salvation three or four times, so (laughs) not really, that's a joke. Um, let me try this another way in case you're still reaching for this a little bit. In popular music, the focal point of a song is typically in the chorus, right? Or there's even uh, sort of a reference that in sort of the modern industry, we would call it the hook of a song. It's that line. It's that part that we all know. It's the refrain that everybody, you know, says over and over again. So I was casting around in sort of my life, and I thought, well, what's a song from my childhood? You know, what's a, what's a good hook to remember? And I, for whatever reason... What came to mind was MC Hammer. You can't, t- you can't touch this, right? I don't remember the words of the rest of the song, but you can't touch this. That's the hook. That's the line. So okay, maybe that's not your generation. Let's go back a little further. Let's go back to Neil Diamond, okay? How about uh, a little Sweet Caroline, right? Sweet Caroline. Yeah, so the hook in that song is the bump, 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 isn't it? It's not even the Sweet Caroline. You get my point. Um, Much like a chorus or the hook in a modern song, the chiasm is there to help the reader see this is the point. This is what I'm trying to emphasize. This is what I'm trying to draw out. And in Zechariah's song, the pairing together of what was told through the prophecies and kept through the covenants, focuses our attention on our God has been faithful. He is faithful to do what he said he would do by prophecy and by covenant. Uh, for me, this past week, kind of studying the passage was uh, particularly fun. I, I found myself identifying with Zechariah in this, the older priest in the text. I'm not older, um, But as I was kind of thinking about him and how all this was hitting him, uh, I thought, yeah, you know, he'd been in his position a long time. How many seasons, how many ceremonies, how many ritual services had he been through? We've been here 18 years now, almost almost 19. It's kind of amazing to me. I've been through a few seasons. um, And I just kind of identified with this guy. You know, he's a priest, a father, or soon-to-be father, natural skeptic. I'm a natural skeptic, at least that's what we'll call it. And, um, and I'm still one learning to love and rejoice, love God and rejoice in his salvation. Um, and one of the other things that I deal with at this particular station in my life, um, I'm experiencing that longevity in a role is a double-edged sword. Uh, some of you will know what I'm talking about if you've been at your job for a long time. Um, I love serving here, and I love you all. I really do. I really do. One of the things that I experience after uh, almost a couple decades here um, is I have a greater, uh, just a, a reality, a sense of reality of the consequence of generational sin. Um, you know, I, I, I'm privileged to walk through with you guys through hard times, but sometimes what I see is that the sins of this generation show up again in this generation or affect this next generation. And I'm beginning to see that, um, which produces its own sense of, of, of heaviness. I think of John Owen's 
line, uh, the sinfulness of sin. We don't sit in isolation. All sin is communal. All sin has effect. All sin trickles down. It really does, which is why God doesn't want us to do it. Uh, so I see that. Uh, I'm also very aware of the ripple effects of decisions. You know, if we make a decision as a church to do something or to not to do something or to say something or not to say something, I'm pretty clear on the ramifications as it will hit people, you know, across the congregation. I'm very aware of that. Uh, the longer I get to know uh, you all and I'm privileged to be in, in your lives and hear about the relational difficulties you might have with one another or somebody else and uh, I see sort of the kaleidoscope of changing and morphing relationships. I'm aware of some of those wounds. Um, I also, as I've said earlier, I have a natural skepticism in me. Some of you who know me know that. I'm a bit of a contrarian. And I can kind of start to wonder, will this ever transpire? Will this ever happen? Will this growth ever occur? Will this person ever change? Will These are just some things that I'm experiencing in my own life after a couple, almost a couple of decades of, of being here in this, in this one place. And I truly love it. But longevity is a double-edged sword. And that came to my mind as I'm looking at Zechariah and thinking about him. Long, a long time in his post. A, lo- a long time without having the child that they had hoped for. A long time praying for the arrival of Messiah. A long time going through the rituals of his priestly role, right? Ceremony after ceremony. Sacrifice after sacrifice, season after season. But, but now, something is breaking into human history. He and his wife are miraculously going to have a child who announces the Messiah of God. His prayers have been heard, is what the text says. And it's pretty exciting to just think where I can relate to being in a, in a particular place, in a particular ministry role for a long time, pretty exciting to think about the moment of truth. Messiah, long awaited for generations, is coming. And my son is going to prepare the way for him? What? They're going to call me John the Baptist, dad, right? <laughs> that's how that's going to go. Well, let's look at some of the pieces of his song here. He has come and redeemed his people. Verse 68, praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has come to his people and redeemed them. We often think we go to God, don't we? We found him. We discovered him. We prayed to him. God has come to his people and redeemed them. The Greek word that's translated uh, here for us in English, come, carries with it this sense of a gracious visitation. One who comes with something inherent in their visit. Uh, in other words, when grandma comes to visit, she's got gifts in her bag. And all the kids know it. Our kids know it. I'm sure the same kind of thing happens in your household too. With grandma comes gifts. Uh, with the Fairbanks winter comes snow and dark. Uh, oh yeah, cold, right? Although not so much this year. Also, the auto start commercial. And bad parking in the Fred Meyer parking lot, right? <laughs> These are things that come with a Fairbanks winter. They're inherent. Or um, with the sun, when it comes back, comes light. 
and warmth and leaf out and a little bit of fly fishing, right? If you're lucky. With God the Son comes redemption. It's inherent. It's what he brings. It's a part of his gracious visitation. It's what he delivers. He is the horn of salvation. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, if I were to do a bit of an inkblot test with you and say, what comes to your mind when you think of horn? If you're musical, you probably go, oh, a little brass instrument of some kind. Uh, If you ride horses, you might say, it's that thing on the saddle that looks like a gear shift, but isn't, right? Uh, If you're a traveler, you might say, oh, it's a geographical feature on a piece of land. It's kind of this, this promenade that sticks up. It's a horn of some kind. Well, what is meant here actually comes from the animal world. It's the horn of an animal. It's supposed to signify strength and power, where this one creature is so much more dominant and powerful and strong than those around it. And this comes home to us pretty easily in Fairbanks, Alaska, doesn't it? I can talk about uh, a full curl sheep. That's the one you want, right? It's got the large horn that comes all the way around past the nose and to the eye. That's the full curl. Or the 60-inch club for moose in Fairbanks, right? Have I shown you this picture yet? Have I dropped that one on you? And I will tell you, this one's not 60. It's 57 and a half. I keep telling my wife, I got to keep trying. I got to keep going. And uh, actually, I think today's the deadline for registration, just to drop that out there. All kinds of things going on. Or we might talk about 10-point buck or big tops on a caribou, six-by-six elk, Thick bases on a billy goat. It's, it's the prominent features of the horn of this creature that we know makes it rise in stature and strength and significance over the other. And that is what is being used here. This, this image is meant to convey the kind of salvation that our God brings. That his salvation is not weak or anemic or small or immature. But it is a strength and significance, and of a power even on a magnitude greater than Israel initially expected. And that is what is being conveyed here. And then we kind of move on to the center of our chiasm, which as I've previously stated is really like the the modern day chorus or hook of the song, the focal point, where it says, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. And so what Zechariah is focusing on right here at the apex of the chiasm is the faithfulness of God. He he is doing what he said he would do through the prophets. He is remembering his covenant, remembering to act consistently with it. The moment of time has come. There are a couple of uh, concepts in the scriptures uh, related to time, and one of the Greek words is chronos, uh, and you might know of this one. This is measured time or sequential time. It's, 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 it's succession of moments. It's when you're sitting in the waiting room at the doctor's office, and you're watching the hand go round and round and round. You're thinking, when? This is chronos time, right? But another concept of time in the scriptures is called kairos, and it is appointed time. Sometimes you see it translated in the scriptures, fullness of time. It's, it's when the due date has come and baby arrives. It's when lightning strikes right then. 
It's, the, it's your appointment. It's your graduation. It's that time that's been waited for, but the moment of truth has broken into reality, and now it happens. And that is what is being celebrated here. It is Kairos time. In, in chapter 1, verse 20, this will happen at the appointed time. And Zechariah gets to say, this is it. Think of those things that you wait for, pray for, you hope for, for years and years and years and years and years. And Zechariah has been doing this, and now it's time. It's the moment of truth, and he's celebrating that. His prayers have been answered. Uh, he goes on to say, we've been saved from our enemies. I think this is very interesting. I think this kind of brings a little tension up here, and I'll, I'll try to resolve this for us in just a second. But in verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies... And to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. I think it's interesting how Israel initially understood salvation or redemption that was coming with Messiah. It it seems to me that very often they were looking forward to his arrival uh, to simply rescue them from earthly enemies and political situation. It was very temporal. It was very here and now. Uh, But what we find is that Israel's concept of salvation is, quite frankly, too small. And Zechariah's song and the rest of Scripture magnifies it and shows us just how great the salvation is that Messiah is supposed to bring. In other words, God doesn't just save His people from an earthly enemy, in this case, Rome. He saves His people from the cosmic enemy of sin. We're not just liberated from social bondage but we're liberated from spiritual bondage. We're not just redeemed back to a a position of political prominence, but we are redeemed back to a position of right standing with God most high. The salvation that God brings is not just for a peaceful and verdant life on earth. That's a byproduct of having right standing with God most high. That's the salvation that Messiah brings, as it says, we are made holy and righteous all our days, to serve him all our days. And here's the thing, you and I cannot do this or achieve this on our own. We can't make this happen. You will never be good enough. You will never outdo uh, the evil or the sin that, has, uh, that is there in your life. The Bible teaches the shocking doctrine of justification with God by faith. We are justified by faith. It's not by performance. It's not by being kind. It's not by doing good things. It's not by giving more. You can never outperform your sin condition. You cannot do it. The Bible teaches the shocking and wonderfully shocking truth that anybody can be justified to a holy God through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification by faith. Um, I recently had some banking issues. We're going to get real here. Uh, uh, A party had recently written me um, a fairly sizable check for uh, something that I was owed. And um, the problem with it was, and I actually, I took it and I I used my phone and I deposited it with the mobile banking app, which by the way, like whoever created that, God bless you. Mobile banking is a game changer, is it not? I love it. Uh, anyways, so I deposited it, and a couple of days, you know, I saw that it went in there, and a couple of days later, I go by, and, 
and uh, I'm writing other checks against that. Well, the problem occurs, which you can imagine, their check bounced, which meant that all the checks that I had written against it being in there, such as property taxes and other kinds of things, just started to queue up. Now I'm looking at my mobile banking app going, I've got all these pending transactions. I'm in deficit. And it's going to get worse, you know? So I'm just like, oh my goodness, you know? So anyways, this was um, alerting. Uh, and actually, the, re- the way I discovered it was I was going through the drive through at the coffee hut. And I ordered my customary Americano. And I gave the woman my card. And she comes to the window and starts to hand me my Americano. And then pulls it back and says, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Your card was declined. And I'm thinking two things right here. Like, first and most importantly, I really need that coffee, right? <laughs> give, give it. And, and, uh, and then secondly, I'm thinking, I, I have some work to do to figure out what in the world is going on here. Uh, amazingly, I had some cash in my wallet, so I was able to just to pay cash for the thing. But that was like manna from heaven. I don't know where that came from. So um, anyways... I get back to, uh, I come to the church here, and I'm sitting here waiting for the bank to open, which was many hours later than I wished it had been. And um, finally they open, and I call them, and I'm, and I'm trying to sort this out and see what has happened. We figured out what's going on, okay? And here's the thing. I couldn't, like, by virtue of persuasion or negotiation, convince them that, no, no, this is good. There's funds there. Like, this will all be fine. I couldn't change the situation. I, I had no purchasing power at that time, which is a terrible feeling if you've ever been there. And there was nothing I could do. I couldn't say, hey, I banked with you for 19 years. I know you. You know me. You can see the other institution where this check was drawn. Like, it wasn't going to happen. They needed real funds, real value to populate my account in order to for me to have any transaction ability. And that is exactly what we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I, each and every person in here, our default position with the Lord is NSF, non-sufficient funds. We're in debt. We're in the rears. There's nothing in our account, and we got pending transactions digging us deeper and deeper in. My friends, this is how we start life. And there's like nothing you can do to change your own status here. You can't say, no, no, I'm a good person. I contributed at Give Back Tuesday. You know, I, did, I do nice things. Ask my neighbor. I even loan a tool every now and then. You do not change your own situation based upon your powers of persuasion, negotiating, arguing, or even you know, being around and being a good person for a while. The only way that our situation is changed is that it is Jesus who populates our account with true value that he alone has. We turn in saving faith to Jesus. We repent of our situation. We turn in saving faith to him. And his righteousness is transferred into our account. We're justified with God based on the actual substance and value of Christ Jesus and his righteousness. And the coolest thing about it is God looks at our account and he doesn't just go, okay, you're good, we're even now. What's in our account is the righteousness of Christ. So we're not just level, we're rich beyond measure. We have the riches of Jesus transferred to us and our debt and our sins punished in him. That is the salvation that Zechariah is introducing here. 
It is not just a salvation of a temporal situation or an earthly rulership. It is that its sins can be forgiven and Christ's righteousness can be transferred to us. That's what he is celebrating. So we move to the second part of the song, and we're going to hit this one very quickly. He praises God for his salvation. Listen to how this this sort of magnified salvation grows as he gets to the second part of the song. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. The knowledge of salvation that is through the forgiveness of their sins. That's what John the Baptist is going to introduce. Not just this earthly temporal salvation. A redemption that changes one's status with God. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. There is a a musical feature, I suppose you might call it, um, called modulation. I don't know if you've heard of this before, but maybe you've experienced it. You might be singing a song with a congregation, and then sometimes you get to that last verse, and they lift it up an octave. That's at least one example of a modulation. Song's going along, it's good and lovely, and then boom, there's like this crescendo and this lift at the end. I I think that's kind of almost what we find here. As good as the beginning part was, God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He's going to do what he prophesied. He keeps his covenants. There's this lift of, well, look how good this keeping is. It's not just earthly temporal salvation. We're forgiven for sin. We're given right standing with the Father. We will be able to be righteous and holy without fear, serving him forever. That is a new kind of understanding of salvation that I think Israel was initially recognizing. To make a few observations about this this second part of this song here, I think one of the real amazing things is God's use of ordinary people like you and me. Zechariah, an old crusty priest, and his old lady, Elizabeth. Just ordinary folks. God uses very ordinary people in his plan of salvation. Um, one, of the, one of the things that kind of got me uh, as I was reading this is how he, he starts in verse 76 with these words, and you, my child. Uh, he, he, Rochelle and I were talking about this this week. It's just kind of really beautiful. Here's a guy who wanted to be a dad a long time, about to be a dad, about to see how his son will participate in the redemptive plan of God. And here he prophetically speaks to him in the future. And you, my child, this is, this is what God has announced you will get to do. And there's this wonderful interaction with dad now and son who is yet to come. Uh, this re- reminded me of something when, uh, when Amy was expecting Aiden, our first child. You know, mom's got all these physiological things going on. She knows she's pregnant. Dad's a little bit oblivious. You don't feel any of it, right? You know, we just kind of think, well... Hope you're doing okay over there, you know. Um, anyways, it's kind of fun when, if you remember this, when baby starts to move and the kicks can be seen and felt and all of that, you know. And I remember when um, Aiden would, you know, he, he, this started to happen, Amy would say, oh, come over, he's kicking right now, you can feel his foot right here. 
that's just great for a dad. You're like, oh, finally, I get to participate in this a little bit. And I can remember, like, I would push against his heel uh, and when he was in womb. And Aiden would classically just push back. That's what he did. And it, I mean, like, invariably, I'd push against, he'd push right back. We have this um, little video clip of uh, months later when he was born. And uh, it was actually the Sunday we were taking him to the church uh, to be dedicated. And I'm sitting there in the chair with him in my arms, and Amy's continuing to get ready. And, you know, we're just cooing over him, and, you know, as you do. And I pushed against his heel, and guess what? He pushed back. And I was just like, man, that is cool. Like, we've been playing this game a while, you know? <laughs> we played this before you were out of the womb. You were a full person then, and you're, you're a full person now. We get to see all that life's going to be for you. We don't even know it yet. But that little game that we had started long ago, I got to continue right then and there. And that was, I don't know, it was just kind of a fun dad moment. And I, that came to mind as I'm thinking about this. These are real people. Zechariah is a real person. He had real hurts and wounds, as did his wife. And they prayed real prayers, and they waited real time. They struggled through the agony of it all. And a child was going to come. But here he's sort of playing this interactive game already. You, my child you're going to get to do this. I can look into your future and see these glorious things that God has said that you are going to do. God uses ordinary people uh, in his plan of salvation. That is amazing. You and I are not just spectators in God's plan of salvation. He uses us. The gospel which you know is to be on your lips and on your life such that others can read it and understand it and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus too. God uses you. You're an actor in the drama of redemption. You're a player on the stage of God's divine rescue. You are agents that God uses to save souls. You are. Uh, again, God's salvation is, for, is from forgiveness or for forgiveness of sins. Not just earthly, not just temporal. And let me say it a couple other ways to be really provocative. Uh, being To be a Christian is not to be religious. It is not to simply go to church. It's not to be an American. It's not to belong to a particular party or voting block. It's not to participate in specific giving exercises. It's not even simply to believe just that there's a God. That does not make one a Christian. And to be saved does not mean that we're saved from trauma or saved from addiction or saved from earthly enemies or saved out of poverty. The salvation that God gives what makes us Christians is that we are saved from the guilt and condemnation of sin. That it is placed upon Christ and we, our account populated with his righteousness and we have right standing with the Father. That is the salvation that God gives because of his tender mercy to have our sin forgiven and Christ's righteousness transferred to our account. Finally, I will say this. Sinners saved by grace will want to be uh, witnesses for Christ Jesus. Uh, good news gets shared, right? I shared with you about my moose. I've shared with you about my hope for fly fishing. I've shared with you the good news of the, my boiler rescue situation. I share with you the good news and the things that happens in my life, and you share the good news that happens in your life with one another too. If God has been gracious to you, if God has forgiven you from your sins because of his tender mercy, good news will get shared. May the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be on our lips as well.
was thinking, and I'll give this in conclusion, about the quotation by C.S. Lewis. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything by it. And that is what the gospel of Jesus does for us. It rescues us with God. It gives us a vantage point to see all that he is doing. Let's pray and thank him for that. Our Father, your salvation is great. Your salvation is from sin, from the guilt and condemnation that we deserve. We start our life, NSF, non-sufficient funds, that by your grace and mercy, you extend value and status to us. You are willing to justify sinful man with holy God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Thanks for this great story about a human father, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. Their hurts and expectations, not just for a child of their own, but their long-standing prayers for the salvation that you promised. Thanks for your faithfulness, that you told us what you would do, and then you did it. And we rejoice in that, and we rejoice in the great salvation we have in Jesus. Lord, let it animate our lives. May we orient ourselves to you because you have been very, very good to us. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.